Hello and welcome to Chic, a podcast dedicated to fashion, design, culture, sustainability, media and technology. My name is Kat Sark, I'm the founder of the Canadian Fashion Scholars Network and currently teach fashion studies at the University of Southern Denmark. In each episode, I sit down with experts and specialists in the fields of fashion and design to discuss the most pressing issues of ethics, sustainability and innovation, as well as what they consider the cutting edge of research and development. The 17th episode was recorded remotely with the fabulous Madison Moore, who is an artist, scholar, and the author of Fabulous, The Rise of the Beautiful Eccentric from 2018. Madison is also a DJ who performs at queer underground parties around the world and assistant professor of queer studies in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. He currently teaches courses on pop culture, for example, a course on Beyonce and one on queer nightlife. His next book project is for Yale University Press about queer nightlife titled Dance Mania, a manifesto for queer nightlife. Hello, Madison. Welcome to Chic Podcast. And thank you kindly for taking the time to record this conversation with me. Please tell us more about yourself and your work. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on the Chic Podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, well, my name is Madison Moore, and I um, teach in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, and I guess I would say, how do I describe myself? I mean, I would say that one of the things that really inspires me, let's say, is... Uh, or are the many and various world-making practices um, enabled by and practiced by um, black and brown, queer, trans people. Um, you know, I'm interested in, despite the fact that we live in a state of emergency, that we are constantly uh, fighting an uphill battle for, you know, basic things like rights and representation and safety um, and all these things, that we still turn to the aesthetic um, as, a, as a politic, as a space where we're able to not only voice our kind of, um, you know, um, brilliance, but also stretch out and expand in ways, um, even though society sort of doesn't want us to exist, um, doesn't want us to take up space, doesn't want us to expand in the ways that we know how to expand. So I guess those are the things that I'm really concerned with um, at the moment in my, in my, in my, in my research. In your book, Fabulous, The Rise of the Beautiful Eccentric, you talk about the stakes of fabulousness as a political act and quote-unquote taking up space, as well as the empowerment of people who are traditionally excluded from glamour narratives, as you phrase it. Could you please tell us more about the concept of fabulousness as you envision it and the political action that it entails? For me, fabulous is really about the way in which black and brown people, queer people, trans people use the aesthetic as a politic, um, as a way to expand and stretch out when we are told that we do not deserve to exist. And then only, not only that, but that we are also under attack for living the way we would like to live, for being in our bodies the way we would like to be in our bodies, that that provokes a certain sense of attack, a certain kind of attack. 
um, from the state. And, um, you know, the idea for fabulousness really came from my looking and my research, um, looking at histories of glamour and noticing that, like, most of the histories of glamour, you know, the important ones by, you know, Richard Dyer and Stephen Gundle or whatever, like, are almost always focused on uh, white women, that they rarely focus on black people. Um, you know, I mean, like, one of the books that I use in my research um, was called Glamour, Glamour or History by a guy called Stephen, Dundle, Stephen Gundle, a really famous um, film historian. And the book doesn't have basically any black people in it. And, you know, I mean, there's like a brief mention of Beyonce on like the last page. <laughs> Girl, you know. Um, and so I thought, OK, well, if I keep reading these histories of, of glamour that do not really include black people in them, which is, of course, tied to the way in which Hollywood was a system of, you know, sort of whiteness on screen, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe there's something else going on. And then so I started looking at, you know, maybe there are other ways that black people, such as, you know, Prince and Little Richard and, you know, Grace Jones um, and, you know, Pam Greer are performing and enabling a different kind of style politic or style practice that maybe isn't glamour. You know, maybe it's something else what they're doing. And so then I arrived at fabulousness, which is for me about a kind of, you know, fabricating or storyboarding of the self, really, and um, how you might use um, those aesthetics and that storyboarding as a way to, again, stretch out and expand in a world that doesn't really want you to exist. And not only that, works to ensure that you are evaporated or that you are kind of, you know, that you disappear. Um, And so for me, that is what fabulousness is about and it isn't just about like um or you know it isn't about a particular garment or a particular you know color or anything for me i'm really thinking about fabulousness as a as an ethos as a style politic that is about taking the risk of expanding and stretching out you know when it would be much easier for you and perhaps even much safer to uh to blend in you know so that for me, the risk of fabulousness comes from that. You know, I used to have um, um, dinner parties at my house in London um, back when I was writing the book. And people would come over, but they would either, you know, be in a full trench coat on the way over and then, like, re- you know, take it off and reveal this amazing outfit once they got to the safety of my, of my flat. Or they would actually change into something else at my flat that they felt comfortable in and then also maybe ask you know, if they could, you know, ride your home because I didn't want to risk getting on the overground or whatever like this, you know? And so for me, seeing, not only having this kind of sort of abstract concept of fabulousness as this thing that's maybe doing this other work, but then seeing it in practice and then seeing how multiply marginalized people are actually doing this work of constantly, you know, um, kind of assessing, reading situations, negotiating situations, you know, in order to perform, in order to decide whether and how much fabulousness to perform and, and is it safe and so on, you know. And so for me, this is really sort of the, the stakes of fabulousness and how it works as a political act. And, you know, we, we tend to think of, of, of sort of politics or, or um, you know, of protesting or whatever as like marching and yelling in the streets. Um, but actually, 
you know, as Alok, the performance artist Alok Vade Minen says, and Manan says in my book, um, that, you know, getting dressed and parading through the streets in a, in a fabulous look is a politic. That is also a protest, you know? You are, every day that you are alive and move through space the way you want to is a protest against systems that are trying to erase you, you know? And whenever I try to explain sort of the, you know, the kind of political heft of fabulousness as a concept and then the risk that it entails, I mean, for me, it's really as simple as going to get a sandwich. Some people can go to, um, you know, they they can go on their lunch break and they can go to, you know, the sandwich shop or the coffee shop or whatever and grab a little coffee or a little, little bit of a little bit of a, you know, something to eat before they go back to the office or to school. And that journey for them is completely unbothered. They're unharassed. They just kind of like go about their business, really, you know. Others, that journey is much more precarious. They are met with um, all kinds of, um, you know, physical, perhaps physical violence or verbal violence or even digital violence by having their photos taken to then later be shared in online forums mocking them. So, I mean, this for me is how I like to try to explain what's at stake with fabulousness, that, that it's about people who are using the materials available to them, not high-end labels, not high-end designer brands. Not, it's not about branding. It's not about labels. It's not about sort of money. It's about how you really use the aesthetic as a philosophy, as a principle to make it known that you exist, that you are here, that you are stretching out, that you are taking up space. I mean, think about, you know, the Mardi Gras suits for the Mardi Gras Indians and the, the, the enormous suits that they wear, these glamorous or these kind of sort of elaborate, sequined, coated, um, you know, really bejeweled kind of, uh, you know, suits that they wear. Those things are enormous and they take up a ton of space, right? Um, and you move out of the way when you see those things. And so... Similarly with fabulousness, even if your outfit doesn't actually take up that much physical space, if it's just on your body and it's just you, the, the psychic space and the kind of mental space that it takes up to kind of move through the, through the world that way, that is, for me, the political gesture. And knowing that a journey to simply get a sandwich dressed the way that you see yourself, the, the way that you want to be that day, knowing that that could get you in harm and so get you in harm's way while someone else could make that same journey and be totally not even, not even sort of noticed, um, frankly, uh, is for me the political heft and you know, critical importance of fabulousness and of style as a politic. I'm curious about your thoughts on the camp exhibition at the Met and its lack of representation or its under-representation of people of color. You interviewed Billy Porter, the star of Pose, as part of the programming in conjunction with the exhibition. What were your impressions of the exhibition and the relationship between camp and fabulousness? And how did you feel about your conversation with Billy Porter and the exhibit in general? You know, I am so honored to have had the opportunity to uh, be in conversation with Billy Porter at the Met. That was really kind of a um, a really 
fantastic opportunity, a fantastic experience to be able to speak with uh, such a cultural powerhouse who is really an icon and, 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 and a sort of a, a template or a way out for so many little black gay boys all around the country who, you know, I know when I was growing up, and I'm for sure when Billy was growing up, there were so few of us, if any, at all anywhere, you know, in the, in the media, uh, on television or on screen. And so to have been able to be in conversation with him was, was just fantastic within the context of the, of the camp exhibit. Um, and, you know, I think that we touched on really some really important and exciting bits, as, in particular with regards to the relationship between camp uh, and blackness. Um, what is the relationship there? And one of the things Billy pointed out was like, well, what about blackness is camp itself, you know? And I talked about, you know, for me, one of the most camp black piece, pieces of black sort of camp history would be the movie BAPS, which uh, stars um, uh, Halle Berry and Nia Long as these sort of like, you know, um, hip hop video girls who want to make it in Hollywood and they have the hair and the nails to prove it, <laughs> you know? And it was just like such an iconic piece of film for me when I was like a teen or whatever, growing up in like red state America, you know, to have that as a, as a piece. So um, for him to kind of really make that connection between, you know, blackness and, and, and sort of camp and, you know, uh, the, the church and camp, what's more church, what's more camp than the church, he said, you know. So those were some really, really important, um, you know, observations. And I think that, you know, whenever you have any kind of exhibit um, or exhibition, it's really hard to kind of present um, a history of something. Although I think the camp exhibit at the Met was not meant to be a history, but really more of a kind of um, an articulation, if you will, or perspective. Um, And I thought that it would have been really great to have to have seen, you know, much more. sort of uh, camp, you know, it would have been really great to have, because because the exhibit was so rooted and tied to sort of Susan Sontag's notion of camp, um, I I think it would have been really amazing to have also looked at camp in the contemporary moment and to sort of think about how is camp experienced today, you know, um, or in the last few years, you know, or or in this decade even, you know, and to sort of, not only through fashion design, which I guess the show did look at that, but, you know, for instance, it would have been great to have had more engagement with kind of voguing and ballroom culture as part of the exhibit, or more engagement with sort of street fashion and the kind of gaudiness of, you know, uh, of uh, a certain kind of like ratchet ratchet style, you know, um, that would have been something that I would have loved to see within the context of of that exhibit, you know, which was beautifully presented for sure. Um, but I think as well, maybe not trying to be encyclopedic in scope, but still, you know, there's, there is an opportunity to have another conversation around sort of um, visual excess and kind of questions of camp. Over the past few weeks, we have seen conversations about race and indirectly about fashion take center stage in mainstream media. How would you like to see this conversation evolve? And what do you think allies can do to help? Yeah, I mean, the last few weeks have been really, the last few months, weeks have been really uh, interesting in terms of thinking about the possibilities and potentialities of radical change. You know, I mean, I think one of the things that 
the sort of the lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic have made clear has made clear is that you know so many things that we have been taught by government actors and those in charge so many so many things that we you know have been led to believe are not possible are in fact possible <laughs> um that you can in fact affect change i mean look at the you know the the sort of protests um against sort of police brutality and anti-blackness in the united states and that has led in certain ways to um, a kind of reimagining of of um, what policing might look like, um, and even though this is being weaponized by the current president of the United States, um, I, I I think that we are seeing you know small small changes. So I do think that you know these past few weeks have definitely been at least opening up conversations um, with regards to race. When it comes to race and fashion and sort of the media and kind of how all these things kind of play out in a say let's say a post coronavirus moment or at least a post um, lockdown moment is you know um, I'm actually not interested in having conversations anymore about this about race and fashion um, I want to see action I want to see change um, I don't think we need any more think pieces or any more panel discussions or any more you know op-eds in the New York Times or wherever about that racist um, fashion show or that black-faced you know ad or that kind of whatever or the lack of black models in the industry or on the catwalk I mean we've seen this literally it's cyclical cyclical it's every year there is something there's something new um, and so I think we don't need conversation we need action um, we need to have people in positions of power who know better I mean, girl, really, that's really what it's about. Um, people who are, you know, asking the hard questions and who are not afraid to face the kind of difficult um, or what might be perceived as difficult, you know, conversations around, around race and fashion. I think that that is where we need to go. I think that, you know, we have seen how conversation leads to a certain moment of, you know, okay, or sort of maybe even a saturation of like, okay, well, you know, um, maybe things should change but what i would like to see is actually fundamental change i want to see more black and brown people in positions of power uh in the fashion world in the fashion industry i want to see more decision makers of color queer and trans of color decision makers across the fashion industry um i want to see more of that on in television and on um you know magazine covers um so that's what i can that's what i can that's why I would like to see change. And, you know, in terms of how allies can help, I mean, I think that for one, I think that when allies, in particular white allies, when you see that um, a person of color or a trans or queer person is sort of being targeted, then you should step up to the plate. You should intervene um, and not rely on the sort of safety of, of sort of whiteness to, to protect you. I mean, you should speak out about that. You know, I think that that is perhaps one of the most important things. I mean, the thing is that people love fabulous people. People love sort of, um, you know, um, um, yeah, the fabulous people. But actually, are you going to help us when we're in danger? Are you going to be there for us when we're being targeted by the police or when sort of, um, if I may, Karen is 
getting at us in the grocery store? Are you, are you going to be there then? So I think that speaking up is a major way that allies can help. I think the second major way is that actually, if you are a white ally and you are in a position of power, then hear this. You need to do better at getting black and brown people on board at your company, um, at your you know booking agency, at your modeling agency, at your magazine, at your sort of in your in your in your you know academic you know dean's office, whatever. Like that is where the change starts. I mean, it isn't only just that we are sort of at the at the kind of on the ground level talking about and asking for systemic change. Actually, if you are in a position of power, you have the tools to then. Ignite the change. How do you think we can all push fashion studies forward? How can we decolonize the discipline and improve it? What does decolonization mean to you? What does intersectionality mean to you? And what do you try to help your students learn and take away from your pedagogy and cross-disciplinary methodology? How can we all use decolonization in classrooms, museums, fashion shows, and eventually also the fashion industry to produce a more just fashion system? And this is a related question that I ask all my podcast guests who are also fashion educators. What do you think is important for the new generation of fashion scholars, researchers, designers to do differently? Well, one of the things that I have really long felt is that fashion studies needs to do a lot more to really engage with uh, African-American studies, black studies, uh, Latinx studies, really ethnic studies more broadly. Uh, I think that so far fashion studies has really been focused on itself, if I may. And I think that this is um, somehow a disservice because it really means that there are meaningful intersections that are overlooked or meaningful intersections that are not really addressed. Um, and so I think that one way you might get at the kind of question of, you know, diversifying and thinking outside of, you know, uh, or presenting, at least presenting students with other ways that people experience, diverse people experience fashion is indeed by thinking about, um, you know, how style is practiced in their own communities, you know, Um And so for me, I think that would be a major place to start. For instance, one of my favorite books is, you know, Slaves to, Slaves to Fashion by Monica Miller, which she's um, a professor of, I think, African-American studies and has written basically a one of the most exciting books for me anyway. And, um, you know, uh, one that also thinks about um, kind of style, the history and cultural conditioning of, of a particular kind of style and looking at it across history, time, by, but also looking at it in contemporary art. I mean, I think that that is, for me, a model for how I would be interested in, 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 um, in, in, in seeing kind of fashion studies kind of evolve. And I'm thinking as well about a new book that's coming out um, on Duke University Press by, I think the author is Jillian um, Hernandez, on basically like over-the-topness in Black and um, Latinx communities. That's like a key book that I will definitely be using in my fashion studies course this fall um, because I think that it really does a lot to kind of not only relate to students' lives and how they might experience fashion, but it also relates to the current moment. You know, it isn't only, um, I, of, of course, there's an element of fashion studies that is focused on sort of the object and kind of the kind of the garment and its history and, and this, and this is that kind of art historical approach. And I think that I would love to see more of a, even more of a kind of cultural studies 
approach, not only cultural studies, but really rooted in the communities where these style practices are coming from in the first place, which is, you know, working class, black and brown communities. And so with that, you know, I would say that for me, decolonization means that you, first of all, uh, have um, people of different ethnic backgrounds teaching students in the classroom. I think it starts there. I think you have different people, uh, you know, people of different ethnic backgrounds teaching the uh, teaching in the classroom, curating the exhibits, um, directing the fashion shows. You know, I mean, I, you know, as with all these things, it sort of starts there. Uh, and then I think once we get to the actual content of, you know, the exhibition of the classroom, I think that it is important to, you know, learn to decenter the white perspective. We need to learn to um, curators and educators need to learn to decenter the white voice, not only the, from a curatorial perspective, but also from the perspective of like who is taught in the classroom. So does it make sense to have a course taught on fashion studies and all the people you're reading, not only all the objects are, you know, designed and designed and sort of exhibited by, by white bodies, um, but also all of them, all the readings are also by white folks. I mean, that is not sort of an equitable way to present the subjects of students, and then also to encourage them to continue to pursue this work. I mean, one of the things that I'm personally invested in is to ensure that, uh, or to, you know, always be on the lookout for those students who are very bright and excited and interested in research, but who may have perhaps been, um, you know, dissuaded to pursue an academic career for, for other reasons, or who maybe even just more simply weren't encouraged by their faculty to like pursue that path. I mean, it starts there. You know, we, we all, we know that change needs to start um, at the top and at the magazines and at the, at the level of the sort of, um, sort of, you know, high end kind of space. But at the same time, we also really need to be committed to changing the classroom space itself, thereby also then creating a pipeline for students to then, you know, come into the come into the fold, you know, they're not coming into the fold if they don't see themselves reflected. I mean, it's as simple as that. Would you like you wouldn't go into a field if you didn't see that there were there was somehow, you know, a personal connection or that you could somehow also, you know, see yourself reflected in that space. You wouldn't do it. And how would you like to envision the rebuilding of the fashion industry after the coronavirus? Hmm, let's see. How to envision the rebuilding of the fashion industry after the coronavirus? I mean, I think that it really does, you know, it really does take these massive paradigm shifts. I mean, we've not lived through, no one has lived through something that was so, that has been so dynamic. I mean, there have been, you know, other viruses and other kind of situations with like the, you know, the market crash and the, you know, um, uh, AIDS epidemic. Um, But this seems to be really unique. The coronavirus seems to be really unique in that, like, I don't know that I've lived through a period where literally the world shut for, like, six months, you know? That just seems super novel, not to mention the fact that the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown really sort of dovetailed with the, the, you know, the unrest, the social unrest around, you know, police brutality and anti-Black um, violence 
and, and racism. So, which is another pandemic, um, pandemic of its own. So, I mean, I think it really does take that kind of force to really force a, a kind of a rebuilding or a restructuring. And maybe one of the things I would like to see is, I mean, do we really need to have, I mean, we have seen the way in which so many designers get burnt out uh, because they, the industry, you know, um, expects them to produce this many collections and this many shows and travel, 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 go, go, go. You know, the bottom line, bottom line, money, money, money. Maybe in the wake, in the afterlife of coronavirus, maybe, you know, we will have fewer fashion seasons. Maybe collections can be shown online, you know. Maybe we don't, like, wholly online, you know. Maybe we don't need to have, not that, I, I, mean, I, lo- I mean, I wouldn't want to see the end of the fashion show because I love fashion shows. <laughs> um, but, like, maybe we can soften it up some. Maybe there are, like, two shows a year, you know. Maybe, you know, or whatever. I don't know, you know. Maybe we just really play with the way that fashion is experienced, um, like, from, from, the, from, that, from that space. Obviously, I want to see more people of color and positions of power across the industry. Um, I want to see more people of color in, yeah, uh, in positions of power, but not only that, but also, you know, represented on the pages. Um, I hope that we don't see another, like, blackface campaign. I would really like to see that stop at last. Um, or any kind of racially, racially, you know, even hint of that. I would love to see that, like, not be part of, like, the world anymore <laughs> after coronavirus. Um, so I guess those are the things. I mean, I think that, like, you know, the fashion industry really kind of, uh, you know, encapsulates, like, this kind of hyper-fast-paced, um, late-capitalist world we sort of found ourselves in, no? And so I think that now that that has largely been, you know, sort of been ground to a halt, I think that we should maybe continue that pace going forward so that that way designers and creatives can maybe have more breathing room between collections, more time, you know. um, Yeah, that's what I would like to see. And, you know, I think another thing would also be that you know, designer like um, brands should not be afraid to address uh, white supremacy as it occurs within their within their within their spaces. They should not be afraid to, or not even not be afraid that they should like, you know, take a stance. You know, I've, what I, I think what I've seen in the last years is that various brands like you know L'Oreal and others have. Victoria's Secret or whatever have like made super insensitive like turfy transphobic comments you know or have like not spoken out against like um, anti-black racism Um, and so I think that I would like to see a whole lot more accountability for brands Um, not only accountability but that they actually speak out I mean I've seen certain models you know, who are, you know, who call out these brands get then sort of like, you know, the short end of the stick. And I think that this is something that I would like to see as well, that, you know, we've seen on the one hand that these brands are the very first to post about, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, hashtag black, hashtag black people with a little heart emoji or whatever, whatever, you know, 
Um, but then it's like, okay, but who is on your editorial board? Where are the black people in your business? Um, why don't you speak about speak out about the last three or four racist incidents that occurred in your place or in your in your branding? So I think I would like to see much more accountability for those kinds of things, um, and that these institutions that today or like at least in the last week or so have spoken about how they're going to make systemic changes. Well, girl, I want to see the receipts. <laughs> Frankly, I want to see the receipts. So here are a few takeaways from this conversation. As Madison pointed out, most histories of glamour are very white-centric and exclude people of color or queer people. So we need to revisit these narratives. And his book on fabulousness gives us the language and the tools to engage with these concepts more critically. Madison's examination of fabulousness also reminds us that privilege, and especially white privilege, allows many of us to take clothing and appearances for granted and to take our gender and skin color for granted. But for many people of color and queer and non-binary people, there is no there is no safety. There is so much at stake when it comes to the basic and fundamental rights of self-expression. White people of privilege need to take their role as allies more seriously and move beyond the conversations and towards concrete actions. Fashion studies needs to be diversified because, as Madison pointed out so far, fashion studies has mostly been focusing on itself. It is no longer acceptable to teach a white curriculum and to focus on Eurocentric material cultures. It's no longer acceptable to put on exhibitions that focus primarily on white people's histories and cultures. And finally, as Madison noted, decolonization also means employing and including people of color and of different ethnic backgrounds in the classroom. And what is perhaps still difficult for many to accept, it also means learning to decenter the white perspective and the, the white voice. That's it for the 17th episode of Chic Podcast. I'd like to thank Madison Moore for his time, for his important work, and for giving us all the language to talk about fabulousness as empowerment. The music you hear is the second half of Chopin's Prelude in A Major, performed by my very talented friend Matteo Tanzi. Thank you for listening. Please share the link to this episode on your social media channels. You can find me on Instagram under at Canadian Fashion Scholars. And until next time. <laughs>